Hello and welcome back to CAMFM. I'm Andrew Holding and this is for Science of Fiction, who we're going to launch straight into our first track as normal and then we'll talk about it after. Stop.
calmfm.co.uk on air and online your calmfm Hello and welcome to the Science of Fiction. I'm joined today again by Will and this week by Duca. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Will. Uh, it's not that hard to say hello. Well, I was there, I had to try to remember the word. I had to pick from all the different greetings I could use. Yeah, H- hello works fine. Difficult decisions. Okay, so do you want to tell us a little bit about it yourself, Duca? Um, my background is I'm a biological anthropologist, and I've worked. Uh, uh, my research has been on stress in human populations, um, basically going out to a um, small a small island in the Pacific Ocean and measuring people's stress hormones uh, using their saliva there, uh, and comparing that to the data that we've got from the UK and uh, the US and just seeing how they're responding there to the huge amount of modernization going on. So the simple way to put it is you look at stress in large populations. Yes, I mean you take small sam- small samples from populations because it's very hard to do it on a very large scale. But uh, yeah, in 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 essence, that's what I do, and I look at the factors that influence how people react to change, and and how there's that inter- interaction between behaviour, hormones, and and in essence, this human stress response. So how do, how do you actually study their behaviour? Um, so is it, is it a case of correlating um, hormone levels in the sample sample set to um, particular technologies or uh, like social movements in in the, in the area, or do you do anything at a more individual level than that? Well, what's so interesting about the human stress response is, in many ways, it's relativistic. So it attunes to your environment. So if you if I asked you to go out to a remote island in the Pacific and climb up a coconut tree that is, you know, maybe 20 meters high, you'd probably get pretty nervous. But the kids there have learned to do it and control their fear of doing that since they were probably about four or five years old. Conversely, if I drag them over to London's Piccadilly Circus, they'll probably get quite stressed uh, trying to cross the road there. So your stress response is unique to, to every individual. And what, what is actually far more telling is seeing how your stress response, your response varies across the day across a week two different scenarios but obviously if you collect data repeatedly from people you can get a very good idea of how they are dealing with the environment around them and in some ways the more uh, the more variation within their hormone levels the the more likely that something is awry Okay, so you, so you expect, kind of in, in general, in balanced people, their hormone levels to be stable at some le- at some level. At yes. least the hormone yeah, more or less. Well, because in a nutshell, one of the things that your stress response and everything that your stress axis coordinates things like metabolism as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the hormone that makes helps you go to sleep at night, melatonin, is high at night. At which point, you want uh, one of your major stress hormones called cortisol to be low. Which is why, of course, when people are anxious and stressed, also there's a disruption of the sleep patterns so there's a natural sort of cont- uh, curve that you go through during the day and what you see is when people's uh, w- when they are particularly stressed things like sleeping patterns and eating patterns change exactly because those hormones are all over the place okay. so this links in very well to the song we just played which was uh, where is your mind by the pixies and that was actually taken from the fight club soundtrack and we've actually spoken with show about fight club before at least i think we have i don't know if it got cut when we're talking about memory of amy milton but obviously the start of the movie is very much about modern life and how the guy isn't coping with the jet set life of flying here, flying there, just doing his job, Mm -hmm. paying taxes and getting ready to retire. 
Yeah, and and this is it was very interesting. I mean, I can't remember the exact figures, but a well-known example is Heinz ketchup. When you're looking at how many of those, it's going to seem arbitrary, this example, but it'll go somewhere, I promise. Um, when you look at the number of options that an individual had to buy ketchup in the 1960s in America, they basically had the big glass bottle and the small glass bottle. If you fast forward to, I think, 2003, at some point in the American market, there were 43 different types of Heinz ketchups. And with that, I also mean the squeezy bottle, the bottle, the glass bottles, the scoopy ones, the ones with the chutney and chili flavor. And actually, you can imagine your family standing there with two screaming kids trying to just pick up some ketchup because that's all they need and suddenly having this whole aisle of ketchup and a whole aisle of cereal so everyday choice making choices is actually something that we find quite stressful i mean this is one of the odd things because people often uh, complain about apple products that there's only a very small range you can buy mm-hmm. from if you go to dell there's millions and millions but a lot of people actually find there is more choice in less and it's got a name for the theory but it's certainly something that really helps people if they can just see a line of four things they can pick they don't want hundreds of choices because it's too much and you know it doesn't just stick with Apple products it goes as far that the witch magazines are basically based on the fact of reviewing five different products with five clear things they do good so people can pick what they actually want the product to do yeah, absolutely. And certainly what I found in Papua New Guinea, where you see a society which in the last hundred years has changed hugely, literally more or less gone from the Stone Age in some of the more remote areas to full-blown, again, exposed to everything the modern life has to offer. And when you ask your your chap who's living in, on subsistence agriculturalists, in the middle of the jungle saying, oh, would you like a TV? He goes, oh, yes, that would be great. You know, I could watch the football. If you then follow that up and ask him, bearing in mind that he's living in a place where there's no sanitation as such other than a pit in the ground, there's no electricity, anything along those lines. If you're lucky, they might have a generator, but that's about it. And then you ask him, well, how will you go about getting your TV? And then he looks at you and goes, well, don't be ridiculous. I'm never going to have a TV. It is so far removed from the possibility of him having that piece of technology technology that it is no longer even a worry. Compare this to the more urban populations, which I also sampled and uh, did questionnaires as well as uh, uh, measuring hormones. So I had the quantitative and the qualitative data side by side. And those people who have seen what the Western lifestyle in some ways is like, for example, they might have trained as a nurse in, in Brisbane, for example, and they've made a little bit of money, but they're still stuck in a third world country and can never realize those dreams. But those dreams for them are slightly more in reach than the guy in the middle of nowhere. And actually, they report being far more anxious, even though materialistically, they are far better off. And the options open in terms of what they can do with their life, quote unquote, job wise, are far greater. But <clears throat> is modern life generally considered more stressful than living in these sort of more remote rural areas? Or is it just totally non-comparative or is it just different stresses? OK, so you've hit the nail on the head there that this is the big thing. Uh, let's face it. A hundred or even a thousand years ago, we're suffering from diseases. We're dying all left, right and center from parasites and uh, violent, uh, violent warfare and everything is, is happening everywhere. There were more people who died from flu in 1918 in one year than all the soldiers that fell in World War I. So our, our, our stress response systems are highly uh, effective at dealing with infection, for example. Our lives from a physical standpoint are very much less stressful. The irony 
thinking is that we are our bodies are in that sense stuck in the biochemical stone age. Hmm. We are designed to deal with getting hit over the head with a bat, you know, crashing your bike and maybe breaking your arm. Fine, you don't have to think about it. It happens, and often people will say, "Oh, I don't know how I dealt with that." You know, I just did it, and but it was okay. And I or I suddenly averted that car. People report actually quite naturally and being surprised that they survived a certain scenario like that. Compare that to people lying awake day in day day out, worrying about their mortgages, worrying about whether they can pay the bills. All these things that physically aren't actually a threat, but just by thinking it, we can activate these stress hormones. So in the Kasparov-Karpov chess match in 1990, for example, the guys sitting behind what is essentially a wooden board playing a game are showing the same stress hormone levels flowing in their bloodstream as soldiers on the front line in, in, in Afghanistan. And of course, that puts a lot of strain on your organs. It's a bit like driving a car in first gear on the motorway. That's great for when there's uh, potholes in a small town, but you don't want to be using first gear on the motorway. You run it wear out the engine. And that's where the difference is, this acute versus chronic stress. So, so is uh, the whole... So the, I guess one of the sort of points of Fight Club was people trying to cope with their, the stress, the stress induced by trivial decisions yes. and uh, intangible things like mortgages by going back to some kind of world where the, the only stress is this person's about to punch me in the face. Um, not that I would want to condone people going out and trying to get punched in the face if they're really stressed, but is, is there any like, is there any suggestion that, that, that getting involved in you know, physical activity is a good way to get rid of stress? Huge. Uh, of all the things that people tell you, of all the drugs that are out there to make people feel happier, my advice is 10-15 minutes a day, go for a run, go and do exercise that you enjoy, because actually that natural burst of hormones, uh, adrenaline for example, is obviously uh, released during fight and flight, and this is also what ultimately uh, influences your runner's high. It's all the endorphins, the, the the pain suppressants. That's what makes you make you feel good because that is what your body's been designed to deal with. And in some ways, yes, uh, actually, about Sapolsky, who uh, Robert Sapolsky, who did a lot of work on baboons, has shown that it does decrease stress levels when higher-ranking baboons beat up the lower-ranking ones because they're, they they've been stressed out themselves huh. by their peers. And there is some evidence to show, not again that I condone any of this, that this is exactly exactly why, for example, domestic violence and abuse happens. It's a way of people releasing that tension. And that, that does seem to have sort of an evolutionary origin there. Hmm. However, hopefully we've moved beyond yes. that and you can find something else to do. Yes, I, I would hope so. You'd hope so. Okay, I think with that we'll move on to our next track. But just before we go into that, you can send in your your comments to studio at camfm.co.uk or you can use the web form from the online player so um, do let us know your comments especially if there's anything about Fight Club or if we've said anything you think you want to challenge us on we're always happy to um, respond because you can't reply back or at least we can censor it um, so yes here's our next track
your station, your Cam FM. Hello, welcome back to The Science of Fiction. That was uh, Human Behavior by Björk, which is apparently her first released track on an album ever. And is, was released about 20 years ago, which really surprised me. I guess she's been around. She's just been around forever, basically. You're old. Uh, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, we're getting old. How depressing. Older. <laughs> Every day. Yeah, no, there's, there's old people and young people. That's how it works. You just get old. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point you feel you've, you've, cro- you've crossed over like, the cusp of... Um, some invisible line. Who knows? No, it's two th- year two thousand is where you make, meet kids that have been b- born past two thousand. That you go, oh dear. It's, it's p- kids have been born after the prequel trilogy of Star Wars. That's my. <laughs> yes, they've never point. known a world where there weren't awful, awful sequels, prequels, whatever. Star Wars used to be good. I don't know if it was. Ever, this is something we often talk about. I'm, I'm not. I loved Star Wars as a kid, but it wasn't necessarily because it was good. You know, I don't claim to have had taste when I was seven. I think it was just one of those things I really enjoyed watching because it was on every Christmas, and that's how I want it to stay. No, I thought I was just awesome, and I wanted to be on another planet. Yeah, that too, but I don't think... Well, after, yeah. after we talked about Star, uh, Star Wars a bit in the past, a friend of mine uh, told me about a... There, there was a podcast. Long story. There's a podcast about some people who talk about how, how their lives were basically changed by seeing Star Wars for the first time in the cinema. You know, they're, they're, they're older than me. But also, <laughs> they mentioned a, um, a some kind of community of people who edit the original Star Wars films, and edit out continuity errors, they find like in wires that shouldn't be visible, delete them. Uh, if a hand is supposed to be the left hand rather than the right hand, then they've, you know, they, they've edited the film to change this. It's all just completely amateur. It, people have a lot of time for Star Wars. Yeah, I, I know. Isn't that meant to be someone who's really amateur who keeps editing it as well? I think yeah, it's called George Lucas. Yeah, he seems to have some, some, some kind of money and power or something. <laughs> does, does this annoy you with George Lucas editing? Because we have this when we did the first show of the season and me and Will basically were like, we can understand why it annoys people but don't care. Uh, no, I, I don't think I would care particularly. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Unanimous. You're not a big Star Wars fan, man. Well, I mean, I like watching it, but at the end of the day, it's film. There's more, far more exciting things you can go out and be doing rather than sitting and watching a film. <laughs> S- such as travelling to Papua New Guinea. Oh, yeah, Papua New Guinea, going climbing, going caving, going walking, ice caving, yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah, way to make me feel great. <laughs> Sorry. I haven't, I haven't been caving. I haven't been to Papua New Guinea. I can take you caving, that's okay. Well, quite cool. happily take, and we can do a, a show with a, an extra long wire and, and do it from I don't know the deepest, uh, biggest cave in Britain. I have sort of strange echoing sounds around. Yeah, the exactly. It'll be unique. Is caving a stressful experience? No, no. I find it hugely relaxing. For if once, I don't have to think about everything else. If you're claustrophobic, though, can't be great. Uh, everybody always goes on about caves being claustrophobic. It's okay. So there are some small bits, but actually. Because it's all natural cave system, the chances of you going into a bit that is completely body sized and that you're not going out of. I haven't. I've been caving now for ten years, taking um, university students caving who've been complete novices, and I've never ever had anybody be stuck for more than about three minutes. And when they realise that, oh, actually, if I move my leg this way, it'll be fine. And we've never ever left anybody behind because they got stuck. Yeah, I think my fear is more if you mix it with. Is it potholing where you also get water bits? Yeah, that's that's that. Might, that makes it even more fun and extra exciting. You just have to make sure that you know when it's going to rain. Yeah, no, but I wouldn't go through a hole which I could get stuck in underwater. No, okay. To be fair, we don't do that a lot. They they're called sumps, and there's not that many where you can hold your breath long enough anyway to go all the way through. But there is a novice cave where the length of that sump is body length, and you just hold your breath and you go through. Um, and it's about having the confidence 
to do that, but we always give people the, the option where if they don't want to do it, that's fine. Caving is a, supposed to be a fun sport. It's yeah. a team and all that, so... Yeah, well, um, that was a wonderful um, distraction, actually. Get, <laughs> I saw, it's kind of, it's in. Um, go, my wife has just sent in, if I go caving, I can take my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter with me. Perfect. You, you can put her on a little, little raft and you yeah, float, exactly. float her alongside. Perhaps. Strength for weight ratio of children, fantastic, and, and small, so you'll be struggling and she'll be happily just wandering ahead of you. She can barely walk. Well, that's you're crawling anyway. <laughs> I don't see what the problem is here. Right, so that last song linked into... Well, it was... Didn't really link into this at all. But um, the movie we're going to talk about is Falling Down, which apparently was back in 1993. Now, I first saw this underage in my fr- neighbour's house, and I was like, oh, I can't watch it. My parents won't let me. And they put it on anyway. So, um, so if, if, as someone who's, ne- who's never seen this movie, and I'd never even heard of it before you mentioned it, um, what's the kind of premise of the film? Long story short, this is and the opening sequence sets the entire film up for a guy who's trying to go about his everyday life and there are lots and lots of little details as to why he's getting incredibly stressed. He just wants to go home to vi- get to his daughter for her birthday. And everything from getting stuck in a traffic jam to people him not giving him change to use a phone all escalate to basically him going around shooting at things. Ah. Well, if I remember correctly, one of the things is he never actually sh- hurts anyone. He doesn't hurt anybody. No, he sh- when I say shooting at things, like he vents his frustration on on yeah. roads and buses and that sort of thing. So there's a bit where he gets he's on it because he starts walking home and he gets into a shop, if I remember correctly, and the shop tries to charge him some ridiculous amount for a sandwich or an apple or something like that. So he smashes up the whole shop but still pays for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this is him tra- taking as his as his sport something sort of simultaneously stress relieving and and anger relieving. Uh, there's a lot of stress relief in the same way that there's a lot of stress relief to be had in doing sports. Actually, him smashing up the shop or, or running around that would actually be quite good for just modulating those stress levels and getting rid of rid of the adrenaline. Not good for corner shops. No, no, no. Again, and I'm not condoning any of this. But to put this put this in perspective, for example, if people when people go um, parachuting or uh, parachuting gliding um, people get really psyched up I mean I, I'm okay I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody you you jump and it's all calm you're not doing anything you're just hanging there and as soon as you land it's not uncommon and I'm as guilty of this as many others is as soon as you land you start throwing throwing up because basically your body's so psyched about everything that's happening but it's not physically doing anything with that and you know uh, at the same time your digestive system is just shut down which is one of the things that shuts down when the stress response kicks in because you don't really need to digest food if you're about to die same thing is for most uh, except i suppose 12 year old boys chances are your reproductive system would also shut down because when you're about to get eaten by something else you don't want to be distracted by pretty girls because then that might backfire and you're not going to pass on any um not going to have any offspring anyway um sorry that got that was distracted again but it's all about yeah, no, it's surviving <clears throat> and yeah and i didn't realize this but the title of falling down is apparently links into the song london bridge is falling down Really odd. I found that out today. Worth looking up. But I mean, it seems like a, a, a common kind of an analogy to make of you know, you know, there's, there's words like breakdown, you know, of, of things collapsing. See, I thought it was just a link to his mental collapse. I didn't realise it had further connotations, but apparently that theme's um, 
referred to a lot through the movie. But what's quite interesting is that on the one hand, he's got this collapse and he's smashing things up. On the other hand, he's still very, very much rational, like paying for whatever he's done. He doesn't, also, even at the very end of the the, um, the film, he's, he's saying, you know, I'm not the guilty one. What are you arresting me for? He really doesn't understand. He he's very much feels that he, has a, he should have a right to have a choice and be angry and so forth. Yeah, he's fed up of the world not being fair to him, yeah. basically. Life can be hard. Yes, deal with it. So I, I think that actually, I don't think we've got any songs to this, so I'm just going to move straight into So American Beauty, have you watched that, Will? I have watched American Beauty. See, there we go, we can find you a movie. Have you watched American yes, Beauty? Yes, I have. Excellent, perfect. So but this, but this, is, this, is, this is like, this is, this is another you know, man trapped in, you know, like te- te- suburban tedium, and he decides to live, live a hedonistic life. I guess he doesn't generally go down so much of the, the, the violent end of the spectrum. That's more just him deciding, right, you know, enough of this and getting a dramatic change in his life. I mean, so if, if as a, you know, someone you know, who you know, works, you know, long hours of a day and so on, um, is, is that people often say, okay, I'm going to go away for a week or a month and you know, go live in a cave or, you know, meditate mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and people often seem to come back and say, well, I was really relaxed and I got back to work and my inbox was, you know, overflowing. It seems like these kind of, you know, Take, take a break from the stress of life. It can only be really temporary. It can be, but what's very interesting there is when you look at how long it takes people after they come back from work for their stress hormones to go down, they've done obviously lots of studies with different types of uh, careers. And one of the ones where it takes longest for people to relax after coming home from work are factory workers working on a line. Partially because they are, have no control over their jobs. Everything that they do is dependent, everybody down the line is dependent on them and they have to keep up with everything right. it's also incredibly boring and f- hugely monotone and those people are far more stressed because they don't make any decisions so their stress hormone levels at the end of the day are far higher than what you see uh, your chief executive who might have a lot of pressure but obviously has a lot of control if you're con- in charge of a company the stakes are high let's not forget that but when times are good you tend to be able to give other people ulcers more or less um, rather than be the one receiving them so this is a subtle difference it's, it's, it's not very clear cut and some people of course will thrive on this manicness of work and if they get most of their life satisfaction out of work, taking that away from them could be their source of stress but mm. that might be completely different for their next door neighbour I've certainly heard that if you work night shifts you die younger Yes, uh, and there's lots of evidence uh, to show that this is true, uh, a lot of it seems to be disease related, now from a very basic perspective looking at uh, stress, stress and stress hormones, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the fact that you're working in a stressful job at night it's changing that cycle so one of the uh, hormones that I mentioned for example melatonin that makes you sleep uh, there's also a lot of uh, neurotransmitters and hormones during sleep that are involved in immune your immune response and keeping that up to date and making sure that everything's okay there when you're changing your sleep wake pattern you're also messing around with everything from your metabolism to 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 these other hormones that are crucial in sort of patrolling your body and that seems to be one of the reasons why you get um, 
um, uh, why there seems to be a correlation between, uh, for example, increased rates of certain types of cancers with night shift workers. So we've actually just had a question sent in, um, which kind of links into that. Can being more stressed have an effect on how quickly you age? Yes, this goes back to um, driving the car in the wrong gear uh, down the motorway. And I know that's a very simplistic example, but imagine, um, uh, for example, the strain that you put on your heart if you're constantly uh, alert and worrying about things and combine that then with high cholesterol levels. Now, one thing I really want to emphasize here, stress does not cause disease. It can predispose to conditions coming out more. So everybody, for example, has certain holes in the walls of their uh, uh, gut where it's maybe thinner. Uh, the reason why stressed individuals are often more likely to get ulcers is because their digestive system is constantly being turned off and then suddenly they maybe binge eat to make themselves feel eater. There's loads of acid then that sweeps through the gut and that's been thinning, thinning because it's been shut down and then of course the acids penetrate to make those holes. So that, that's a very simple example. It's a very complex answer but the, the the long story short is that yes because your body a bit like a car if you drive it to the limit all the time to some extent you will it will age it quicker so i think it's the same sender has just followed up with can eating chocolate relieve stress i love chocolate uh, I love chocolate too. I think it's it's a great thing. Um, one of the uh, reasons that uh, both um, chocolate and those other uh, things, uh, such as eating turkey, for example, has also been shown. So in Turkey, it's tryptophan, which is a precursor um, to uh, our many happy drugs uh, in in the brain. Um, and uh, the adrenal so the adrenal glands, which are the ones that release your stress hormones uh, and also uh, allow you to have the neurotransmitters in your brain sort of pick up the happy signals as well you know it's a two-way process and the, the there's components in chocolate uh, although i emphasize over 70 percent dark chocolate which will also have those effects i like dark chocolate so that's great yeah. um yeah we'll keep sending in the questions they've been great so you can send it in through the web form which is just on the online player or to email studio at camfm.co.uk and um this is our next track
97.2 On air camfm.co.uk And across Cambridge Your music Your Cam FM Now that, that bed fits so perfectly with that song, didn't it? It was definitely a seamless transition from the you know, one beat to the other They were pretty much matched and, you know, genre, everything the same Yep, yep So um, I should start mixing, I think I'll bring out a mixtape It's going to be great So that was um, Panic Switch by the Silver Sun Pickups an, an excellent song. Um, one of, one Did of, you pick it? <laughs> one, one of many songs which um, was kind of written uh, in the few minutes left over in a studio and then happened to be, you know, became one of the singles from the album, which seems to happen a lot. Um, this is a digression. That's, that, that's the thing uh, about that song. I mean, I, I love Silver Sun pickups. They are, are they Japanese? No, nope, they're American. They're American. Okay. It's another band I think about who are Japanese. Um, 
Right, so I was just going to bring up, and this doesn't link in at all, Full Metal Jacket, which is... I didn't realise it's 1987 it was made. There's a, there's a recurring theme here of things being much older than we think they are. Um, I, yeah, I'm, we're old. Um, but it is Kubrick, so he didn't make that many movies. He just made good ones. Um, but it is interesting because it's an example of the training before going out to battle and the actual being in Vietnam itself. And it it is... It's a very harsh movie. I think it's got a reputation that people now laugh at it because of the um, standard way that you people don't take things seriously when they're a bit old. But um, it just shows the hardship of the training and the Vietnam War. And I was just sort of bringing that up because obviously I was curious about how is the stress of these people who end up in these pretty horrendous situations. I mean... Well, this is phenomenal. Um, You can only begin, I guess, to to imagine it very vaguely, watching not just this, but also the other films and some of the reports. And I wonder sometimes whether it's nowadays worse for these young soldiers, because comparatively, our lives are so comfortable that the transition from the battlefield, uh, or from home to a battlefield, is perhaps even more poignant than you can maybe imagine it in the 17th or 18th centuries um, and the psychological stress um, is is such that I mean there's lots of studies on post-traumatic stress syndrome um, which you can sort of see as a continuum of people being overly sensitized to their environment around them uh, and what happens I'm, I won't go into details but basically what happens to those key stress hormones such as um, cortisol cortisol is uh, one of the ones which allows us to keep going during our fight or flight response but there's an area in the brain called the hippocampus which is also very much in tune uh, and required for making decisions and emotions and so forth and that has loads of receptors for this the, this neurotransmitter cortisol and in soldiers with post-traumatic stress syndrome one of the things that if you imagine this area of the brain like a tree with lots of branches it can literally whittle away uh, it's called atrophy and, and die, the edges can die off and it can reduce by about 20 to 22 percent in size so if you can imagine that's physically what people can see on MRI scans I mean it is phenomenal the effect of physically what it has on the brain imagine that 22% of that critical brain area in decision making emotional response appropriate emotional response to for example a door slamming and understanding that that is not the same as a gun firing off um, so the, the consequences can be physically very much long lasting and and it, it, there's then a knock on effect because once one bit of the brain isn't responding properly it, it continues on. Um. So is it... So, yeah, I guess the... Full Metal Jacket and many other military films depict how harsh the training is, um, as well as the you know, actually being in a field with people trying to kill mm-hmm. you every hour of the day. Yeah. Um, and it seems like um, military training has, seems to have a lot of emphasis on basically kind of shock and awe. Like, you take these people and you try and push them to the limit as quickly as you can. Is that, is there, is that, is that a sensible thing to do from any kind of... Well, yes and no. And I think one thing that we sometimes forget, you're right that they've got to be on their guard uh, a lot of the time. But the other thing that uh, being out in Afghanistan, you look at the schedules some of these guys have, uh, and women as well, there's boredom is a big part of it. Um, Mm. I once once spoke to a soldier who would get really quite angry at at sometimes a little bit at things like James Bond, because the reality is that being in, 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 in a war zone isn't about the glamour of running in with a gun 
sometimes you're just spending half your day lying in a ditch in the rain somewhere realistically so it's that combination of you've got the boredom and you never quite know what's going to happen in some ways so this is also why military life in other ways is very structured because it needs to be because when you're out on the field anything can be coming from any direction and I think especially in what we've seen in Afghanistan is that uncertainty of never knowing what's coming from where um, and that's the killer a lot of our uh, stress responses relate to the more we can predict it in some ways this can be an Achilles heel because you can lie awake worrying about it but then you can also plan to deal with the situation mm-hmm. so I guess this, this, this comes back to um, uh, factory workers being like, really wound up because they have this whole day and um, there's nothing they can do to influence it Exactly. So, so in the Mediterranean, you know, if, if you're stuck in a ditch, yeah. looking for someone who might come over a hill yeah. all day, yeah. and there's, there's, you know, there's, there's no, the, nothing you can do to affect that. No, and the, 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 but your body is very clever to the point, for example, that when you are faced with a dog charging you, a, a violent dog, is your stress response system will increase the blood flow, obviously, to your muscles. But there's even evidence to suggest that more blood flow is going to your legs. Compare this to if a man is coming or coming at you with a, a, a bat or a knife or whatever more blood flow goes to your upper body. So your stress response system for those very, what I would call almost primeval challenges, um, very much the fight or flight, uh, is it triggering you to encourage you to run away or is it going to encourage you to actually stand there and do something about it? That's very, very successful. Um, So I suppose when they're actually there, hand-to-hand combat, a lot of time you hear people, I wasn't really thinking about it, I just did it. And that's exactly what you want to do. If you ever have anybody say, I'm really afraid of spiders and they walk into a room and say, I was so scared, I saw a spider and ran out. That's not actually what happens because that older part of your brain, that reptilian part of your brain prevents the neocortex from reasoning. If you have to decide, and when you see a leopard, I wonder whether this is a a friendly thing or not a friendly thing, that's too late. You could be dead by that. So when there's a a scenario where there's a stressor, such as a a violent attack or a wild animal, your level, your fear will actually only set in later. Your motor cortex will initially override your reasoning and make sure that you're out of the room. And only later, this is where the shock sits in and people start shaking after the event, even though they've already dealt with the actual uh, problem. So only, the, only then does the rest of their brain catch up and figure out, okay, this, yes. this is what just happened. Exactly. And I did this thing, and I, like, it was, you know, it, was, it happened, all happened too fast and so yeah. on. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> I think, sorry about coffee down, my friend. I think we'll move on to our, probably our final track of the show, because we're running out of time. At least, I know it's 15 minutes left for you, but it goes quite quickly when you're on this end of it. And um, then we'll probably come back, and I think... You wanted to talk. You two wanted to talk about the um, bystander effect in this small child in China. Yes. So yeah, that'll be after this track.
Okay, so that was a part one of parts one to five of Shine On Your Crazy Diamonds by Pink Floyd. And uh, I just want to put that on because it seemed very relevant to me. And again, just going to hear it's continuing on in the background. Um, because Sid Barrett, who um, that wasn't his name he was born with, but that's what he was known as, above the... Um, Pink Floyd. Actually, uh, due to everything that happened with Pink Floyd in the early years, and presumably some possible drug taking, which I don't want to have an opinion on, um, when they were recording this track, he apparently turned up to the studio where they were recording Shining Crazy Times, which is actually about Sid. And um, Roger Waters, who was part of the group, who was a good friend of Sid, didn't even recognise him because he shaved his head and shaved his eyebrows off, which is something, if you watch Pink Floyd The Wall, um, is... A scene in there where the lead character Pink shaves his eyebrows off and that was basically all part of the fact that Sid was just started to fall apart in the late years of the band but he didn't actually survive till 2006 so did quite well but it is a it I think it was partly down to the possible success of Pink Floyd and the stress with that that led him to go down that rather detrimental route it's, I mean, there, there, there have been other artists who've ended up sh- shaving, shaving their heads as, as, as a coping mechanism. I mean, one, Ms. Britney Spears, did this. And it's, it's come up in various like, TV shows as well. I guess people think, well, I, this is something I can control and shave their head off. Or, or maybe it's not even anything, anything as rational as that. I, I, I'm not sure, but one of the things that you do see when people get stressed, certainly um, uh, picking the hair out uh, of their scalp or their eyebrows is very common. And not just, and also chewing the hair sometimes on their arms is something that you see uh, in monkeys and lots of mammals where they start scratching or over grooming themselves and that's a clear sign of stress so whether it's to cover something like that up or not I don't know but certainly that's very much stress related yeah well, I mean I remember the main thing about the story is the fact that he was in the room and uh, Roger Walters just did not recognise him for ages and when he did find out who this strange person in the studio was uh, he broke down in tears because it was his school friend I think so. I know. They, were, they used to go to the Anchor Pub according to the Black and the Anchor that sounds plausible. I, well, I read it on a plaque there. It must be true. Yeah. So we were going to talk about this um, small child in China. Yeah, so in a nutshell, what happened here is that uh, a two-year-old was run over by a minivan. This is a busy sort of industrial market type area. And you can watch, uh, if, if you want to, it's quite distressing. The video is up on the BBC News website, for example. Uh, but uh, it is quite distressing, so make a decision as you, whether you want to watch that. What's not the worst part is that not that the she gets driven over, but she's still alive. She's two years old. The driver of the vehicle gets out, looks at her, and then drives off. In the next hours, 18 people walk by, some looking, some just walking on, without doing anything, until eventually a, a woman clearing up the garbage takes notice of her and eventually makes sure that she gets to the hospital. Yeah, I mean... But one thing I was interested about is a lot of people blamed on China. Would this... Is this symptomatic of just city urban life, or is this something we'd expect to see in the UK? It just hasn't been reported on. Or is it just a one-off unusual thing for China? Okay, so there's a combination here of cultural things that are important, but also social psychology. Um, Just putting the cultural aspect in it, in China, uh, uh, in recent report, 80% of 
people that were interviewed um, said that they wouldn't help somebody if they were hurt or they fell over or they tripped or they were seen as injured somewhere. And this uh, is recurring after some very high-profile cases in which elderly people have been helped, uh, in some one case, by a student who helped somebody uh, as they'd fallen off the bus and subsequently sued by the elderly person for allegedly causing the accident. And uh, this has been upheld by Chinese courts. So there's a lot of fear from people, and this is the reason they say they won't help, is because there's this fear of making money, people making money out of them, so they will just let them be. So this idea of suing culture being very much an American thing is actually, it's not true. It also perversely is in a place like China, which we consider a very different culture. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it, it, I mean, we always look, like you say, at the American culture as that happening everywhere. And certainly it does also pervade there. But in in, uh, in September in two, um, and this year, there were several cases where, for example, an 88-year-old man choked on his own blood after he fell in the street and, and broke his nose. And nobody nobody helped him. You, you know, it, it really that serious that people are so wary of the monetary concerns. So that's very much the, the the, the cultural side where obviously once a few courts have upheld certain rulings like this people get very wary and in where, where, where their budgets are tight I can sort of understand that. The other side to this is, is known as the bystander effect which was first documented um, and studied in the se- uh, late 1960s and uh, prominent in the 1970s uh, after a young woman Kitty Genovese was murdered um, to the point where long story short again somebody gets stabbed by a serial rapist um, and murderer um, uh, interrupted by a neighbour then the neighbour leaves and ten minutes later uh, or uh, ten minutes to half an hour later the murderer returns to finish the job and in the course there there were 28 people again who heard or saw bits and pieces now what you see with this bystander effect, it's worse when the bystanders are people who don't know each other because people take cues from others around them as to how they should be appropriate to act. In that sense, we're very much like sheep, uh, whether you like it or not. You know, if, certain, if nobody's acting and doing anything, they go, well, that's not my responsibility. Clearly, it must be OK. And people are much more likely to walk on. I guess you, see, you see the same thing in, in less uh, horrific situations on, you know, buses in London. If, if on the top top floor of a bus is pretty full and um, there's someone you know, playing, playing music out loud, there's lots of people tutting, but no one wants to be the first to step forward and say, just turn that off, it's really annoying. And actually, social stress is one of the major stresses that we now have to deal with. You know, we can get incredibly hung up on how people perceive us and so forth, uh, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. You know, whether you're accepted by a group or getting beaten up by them, making the right judgment call is very important there. Um, what's interesting about this bystander effect, so the more busy it gets, the more unlucky that you'll probably be in terms of somebody helping you. So if you're going to have an accident, do it somewhere where there's only maybe one or two people around. If you can really plan your accident properly, what I would suggest is do it where there's a group of people, where there's a mixed group of friends, a mixed um, mixed gender group of friends. If the bystanders are a group of friends, they are much more likely to help whatever's happened because they feel the social responsibility from their friends being around. And individuals as well will, will also help. What's quite striking in the case of this Chinese young Chinese girl is that although it was generally a busy area, some of the people are actually walking past her as they're they're single single people they're not it's not a big group so it's it's very surprising and maybe it's it's being too cynical but you wonder whether the fact that it was a young girl rather than a young boy played a part uh culturally in in this case Hmm. so i have to plan all my mistakes from now on 
And yes, yeah, that's a very good idea. Um, well, good thing is I can tell you in this country, if you get drained for first day by St John's, they give you insurance. Oh, that's really? Very good. Yep. Yeah. So I have I'm insured for so many so much money if I um, accidentally kill someone trying to save their life. Uh, uh, when you when you were trained, were you given any warnings about um, intervening in accidents you saw overseas? Because um, I, I seem no. to remember people, people saying that you know, during first day training they, they've been re- advised that if they're ever in the US for, specifically um, or more generally anywhere where they don't know the like local like cultural or legal um, ramifications that they should not get involved in any, any scene. I mean, I did ask the question, what if you want, need to give first aid to someone who has religious clothing or something like that which would get in the way? And mm. I mean, I was particularly thinking of certain cultures in a female dress because it does make it very difficult for certain things, and I don't want to offend them. And but equally, you'd quite like to help people live. Yeah, and I think the first thing is that most of the time you don't come across people who are not able to talk to you, especially in if you're in a foreign country, it gets more complicated. But so if you've got someone who can at least has a grasp of English, you don't do anything without that permission. And that's true of anyone. Yeah. Yes. yes. It's the first well, thing you ask. When it gets unconscious, you have no responsibility to do anything, but you basically have to make a decision, will you do what comes first, keeping them alive, or be worried? And that is actually down to you. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they'll have someone around you can get permission from, but CPR is the thing I think is particularly difficult, because if someone's got something that covers the mouth up, you don't really want to um, take that off and make a big faux pas. But it, it, the trouble is, just that someone's wearing religious dress doesn't mean that they're actually against CPR. Yeah, of course. And it gets very, very complicated. I was trained by a chap doing expedition first aid who said, you know, the first thing I want you to do is explain to somebody what you're doing as you even before you walk up to them, because he personally had the experience of being in a car crash, lying, uh, sorry, motorbike crash, lying on the middle of the motorway, assuming that somebody was helping who was completely out of it, and this guy robbed him off his wallet on the middle of the motorway and drove off. Yeah, what that. The hell? <clears throat> yeah. That I can believe from other things I've done. Um, not me personally, Rob. <laughs> uh, well. I don't f- don't think we've actually got much time left on the show, and my clock's reading. If only a few seconds left, I said it would go fast. Um, so thank you for all your questions. We'll be back next week. Will do you have any idea what the- you've got? One or two guests lined up? Maybe there, there, there are a few possibilities. I think we'll, we'll we'll announce it on the on the website or on Facebook or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so face, Twitter, something like that. One of, one of these things in the cloud. So um, yeah, well, you've been a great audience, and uh, thank you to our guest. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me.